So we're in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, we've been studying this together throughout this year. So we're in Matthew 26 today. Um, just the way this goes today, if you have a Bible in front of you, it might be helpful to you. It uh, would be uh, Matthew 26, starting with the 14th verse and going all the way through the end. Um, July, a year ago, on Father's Day, uh, my, if you might remember that, if you were here, uh, my father passed away uh, that morning. And so I was there with them and had, um, was with the family. I uh, was able to um, preach his funeral uh, that week, which was just an incredible privilege uh, for me. Uh, anytime I do a service like that, I always meet with family and we talk together. So uh, maybe Tuesday of that week, um, I don't know what everybody's doing. I think they were going out buying clothes or something, you know. And so my mom and I were at my uh, house I grew up in. And I said, you know, let's just talk together. So for about three hours, uh, we talked together. And, you know, as a kid and you're growing up, you know stuff about your family. It's just that you don't always ask all the questions and all that. And this kind of moment, you know, brings that out a lot of times. You have all these conversations. So we started talking. And I knew where they grew up and some of that. But started getting all these details. And, you know, mom said... You know, I said, well, how did, how did it all work out as far as you know, getting together and all that? And she said, well, you know, they grew up in this little town. Um, they were working in this little town in South Carolina, and Dad was a butcher, and so he was in the meat department, and Mom was the cashier at this little grocery store. And so um, I guess when she started working there, he, he liked her. And so they began to, uh, you know, he'd come up and talk to her and wasting time and messing around, you know, all that. And, and then, uh, you know, they didn't have all these fast food places back then. You know, they, uh, they had like the drugstore next door to the, uh, to the grocery store that had a soda shop. You know, right there. So she would go over there, take her break and get a Coke or something and snack. And so uh, he worked it out where he'd take his break at the same time. And so he would, he would go over there and they'd go down there and this blooming love happened, you know. And so uh, I thought that was interesting and just the whole, uh, how all that goes. And I'm sitting there listening to him talking about all the houses they lived in and where they moved and this happened and all the different jobs that they had taken and just really, really interesting. And I was, I sat there and thought, uh, I said, mom, it's just like, this is like your story, you know, just hearing every, all the details of the story. And then I said, it's not really your story. It's like my story as well. You know, I asked her about, you know, they grew up in church and then, uh, but, you know, young married and figuring out where they were going to church. They moved around jobs and houses quite a bit and then ended up in the town that I grew up in and how they got into the church and all that stuff. You know, how uh, my dad was Nazarene and, you know, how that legacy continued. And it's just fantastic. And I just thought, man, that's my story right there. That just tells so much about how I am who I am and uh, love to embrace that story. You do that, don't you? Uh, you have all these people and situations and things that happen in your life. Well, I was thinking that that's, that's sort of what Matthew is up to when you get to Matthew 26 uh, through 28. Now, we made our way uh, through, through here. I, I wrote on the outline for you. Uh, as we've seen throughout this series, Matthew presents Jesus as the king the almighty Lord of the universe come to earth in human flesh. He came for us. He came to give himself for us on the cross. We recognize that what we are observing and studying is the most sacred and monumental event of all of history. Last Sunday's message was the cross, the centerpiece of all of history. And that's why this cross is sitting here reminding us that really the center point 
of the entire history is the cross of Jesus Christ. We notice that even in the midst of Jesus' betrayal, mock trials, and execution, he is revealed in humble but regal dignity. Far from diminishing his majesty and glory, the events of the crucifixion of Jesus portray the powerful and culminating expression of his godly grace and power through man's ultimate act of sinful depravity, killing him on the cross. God accomplished his ultimate act of righteous redemption for all people. Jesus is making his way to the cross of his own accord for all of us. Uh, so we're going to reflect with this awe on the events leading up to his sacrificial death and on this old rugged cross. So the stage is set. The stage was set last week at the beginning of 26 when he's talking to his disciples and he proclaims once again, I'm on one way to, I'm in Jerusalem here and I'm going to be crucified and, and killed. Uh, he makes that proclamation to them again. And then you remember we talked about the woman who poured the uh, the beautiful perfume over his head and how her reaction was what our reaction to be. And now, it's a, and remember I told you, he changes, he keeps changing locations. He, he's like, oh yeah, let me tell you this. And oh yeah, let me tell you that. And he's back and forth. And he does that throughout these next two chapters. And so that's what's happening. He is telling us our story. You see, our story is not simply that they beat Christ and put him on the cross. The story starts very dark and sinister. You got any dark and sinister in your story? We do in our story, don't we? Uh, it starts in verse 14. Now, I'm going to lay out for you today, uh, as, as we kind of walk through these, just 13 different steps along the way here as we, as we just kind of understand and discern what Matthew is up to in expressing this story to us. So, number one, Matthew 26, 14 to 16, Judas makes a sinister agreement with the religious leaders. He makes a sinister agreement. It says, one of the 12 called Judas Iscariot went to the chief priest and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you. So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. So here we have Judas, one of the 12. He's in our story. And he is the one determined to betray Jesus to the religious leaders who wanted to kill him. What are you willing to give me, he says, if I deliver him to you? You know, throughout time, people have spent a lot of paper and conversation about why did Judas do what he did. Uh, he's called Judas Iscariot. He's probably not a Galilean. He was probably from Judea. Uh, maybe that disillusioned him a little bit, but maybe he's watching the ongoing conflict that we've seen throughout Matthew between Jesus and the religious leaders. And he concluded that he needed to get on one side or the other. We don't know for sure. Maybe it's because he didn't believe Jesus was the true Messiah, uh, the true prophet as like Saul of Tarsus was for a while before he was delivered. Um, some people maybe suggest they even had this, you know, noble motive of being a little impatient and trying to push Jesus to go quicker or to be maybe more of a political Messiah that would take over. But the truth of Matthew is that it tells us what his motivation was, and it was primarily greed. What will you give me if I give him to you? 30 pieces of silver. 
probably about $25. Jesus betrayed on the cheap, 30 pieces of silver. They counted out. Uh, we recognize this betrayal uh, from Judas. Second thing he tells us about is the preparation that was made for the Passover meal, Matthew 26, 17 to 20. Uh, reminds us about this Passover. Remember last Sunday we talked a good bit about Passover, how they celebrated the, the death angel passed over their houses when God was delivering them from Egypt and they had this meal that was prepared that they would eat this meal at the Passover feast as a part of the celebration of that. So they're getting ready for that. Um, he says to them uh, as they're gathering, uh, assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now, that's quite good dinner conversation, don't you think? Not so good. One of you is going to betray me, uh, he says. And the one that at their Passover meal there, the one that dips his hand with me in the dish will betray me. Well, I'm sure they all dipped their bread in the juice that was there. Uh, but he recognizes that one of them, uh, and notice what they begin to say. They say, Rabbi, is it I? Is it me when you say that? You say, is he talking about me? Uh, have I done something? Uh, all of them ask that. They also ask in genuineness. But Judas knows that he's already uh, taken the money uh, to betray him. So Judas appears. Uh, he's the one that is uh, recognized. He's ready to betray him. And Jesus says to him, you have said it. Jesus was not there to condemn Judas, but to call him to repentance. Notice how Jesus, Jesus treats Judas throughout this whole chapter. He treats him with love, even when he meets him with the kiss that we'll see in just a moment. Uh, he recognizes that, and he is recognizing that Judas is now going to be the betrayer. Number three, he gives Judas one last opportunity to repent. He asks him, uh, is he going to be the one? And giving Judas an opportunity to turn away, a last opportunity uh, to repent. Number four, we have this institution, Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper. They're eating, and Jesus takes bread and blesses it, and they broke it and gave it to the disciples. Take, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So they're eating. Can you see them? They're gathered around the table. They're having this meal together. Uh, the other gospels tell us that Jesus uh, washed the disciples' feet uh, at that same setting that they're, they're gathered there. And so Jesus is taking this meal that represented the Passover uh, where they would come along and say something like, this is the bread of the affliction of our forefathers in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. Uh, the Passover created a nation. The, the slavery of Egypt brought them freedom and to become a nation. The Passover meal uh, also creates a new people. The, the new covenant that he brings uh, unites us together as a church as we recognize what Christ has done for us. He says, eat this meal in remembrance of his sacrifice. Take and eat. This is my body. This is my blood of the new covenant. We celebrate that often here. It's, it's our meal as we gather together to remember 
what Christ has done to us, to fellowship together, the blood of the new covenant. Can you believe that? We're so privileged. He offers this new covenant, this new opportunity. He says, every time we eat and drink together, this is where he institutes that, that thing we do every month, what we'll do next Sunday on that first Sunday of October. That's a worldwide communion day. And once a month, we together take where we recognize what Christ has done for us. Aren't you glad that communion, the Lord's Supper, part of our story? Uh, part of who we are as believers in Christ. You know, a new covenant recognizes that Christ has brought inner transformation. He didn't just want us to have a, a ritual to go through. He wanted it to represent the transformation that he has done and brought into all of us, a true cleansing of sin, a, a recognition of not only the word of God, but the will of God uh, in our hearts that brings us into a close relationship uh, with God. Notice he says, this blood which is shed for many. I'm in the many. <laughs> You're in the many. He didn't say, this blood that was shed for my favorite 11, those apostles, but shed for many. All of us. It's our story. It's our family story that Christ giving himself to us, welcoming us. I mean, when, when we have a little family time, you know, we, go, we get together, we usually eat. How about you? Right? Somebody cooks something or we go somewhere or, you know, that, uh, that time around the table is so valuable. When we haven't seen each other, a chance to be together, whether it's been a week or maybe it's been a year, whenever the time that we're able to be together, that's what he's saying. This is our story. What Christ has done for it. And we come and we gather around the table and we eat and drink in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. It's, it's, it's family gathering. Uh, don't you love this story? Uh, he's helping us to see how we, how we fit in here. Recognizing these are not just kind of just symbols that we use, but they are powerful pictures of what we partake in uh, in the, the Lord's Supper. Take and eat, and he says, give thanks uh, as we come together. That's, that's, why we have a, that's why we use a cup and, and, a, and a little piece of bread, and this cup is our reminder of the blood that Christ uh, has shed for all of us. It's our family story. Um, he comes next in uh, number five is that, you won't believe this, it says, Jesus sings with his disciples and goes to the Mount of Olives and then to Gethsemane. Jesus sings. Scripture says there when they had sung a hymn. Uh, you know, we don't think often about Jesus singing. You, know, you notice he led worship, uh, yeah, evidently. Because um, I think if he sang now, if he sang in this moment, at this time, and what's happening, that means he sang all the time. I mean, they, they sang together. It wasn't like the first time. Many times there would be songs from Psalm 116, 117, 118 that would come out, would be the songs of the Passover. So they had these songs that they would sing devotionally and when they, or when they came together. So that's, that's part of what we do. We just, just, we're, we're in the family of God and we come along and we sing together. Uh, it's remarkable that Jesus could sing on that night. Uh, no sweeter singing, no mightier music than what was happening uh, in that moment. He sang. Uh, a great hymn. One of the phrases they might have sung is, um, you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, and my feet from falling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Psalm 
Psalm 116, 8 through 9. That's pretty good cross and resurrection singing, isn't it? Uh, it's talking about living the life that God, you know, when he rose up from Gethsemane, that was on his lips, giving praise to God. Uh, God is a singer, so we, you remember that uh, as you think about your own singing and praise to God. Um, number, number six, uh, Jesus predicts the desertion of the disciples. 26, 31 to 35, Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. He goes on to describe Peter, uh, who is saying, I will never uh, deny you, I will always live for you, and Jesus proclaims that he will deny him three times. Uh, Even if I have to die, I will not deny you. And so he said to all the disciples, all of them are going to stumble. We we know that story. We know that's part of it. Uh, It's part of our story. Uh, Peter comes and he denies Christ uh, three times. Jesus had said to him so clearly, before the cock crows, you will deny me three different times. He gives an opportunity for Peter to understand it, but Peter doesn't understand it. He doesn't recognize the spiritual reality of the battle that is taking place for his soul uh, right now. And so Peter comes to this place of denial uh, of Christ. It's predicted uh, by Christ. Matthew 26, 36. They make their way to Gethsemane. And Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane, one of the most sacred, amazing moments in the Bible. Then Jesus came to them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. He said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He came to this place called Gethsemane. Uh, Gethsemane means olive press. And so these olive trees still kind of stickly and gnarled. If you look at pictures of that, I went there one time and still looks the same like that. These thousands of years old trees, olive trees uh, that were there, uh, they crushed those olives to, to make the olive oil. He began to be sorrowful and distressed. Jesus is disturbed. He knows the physical horror that is waiting him on the cross. He came to Gethsemane for a moment of coming before the Lord. He says, my soul is sorrowful uh, even even unto death. You know, Jesus didn't just die as a martyr. Jesus went to his death knowingly according to his father's will facing this day. It was agony uh, for him. He said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Once again, the cup was not about death. The cup was about judgment. He says, could this cup pass from me? And the father clearly says, no. And he says, not your will, not my will, but your will uh, be done. So here we have him uh, praying in the garden. I love this, this prayer as he wins the battle in prayer. You know, Jesus models a praying life for us, right? For them in that day and for us now. He prayed standing up. He prayed on his face. He prayed short prayers, long prayers. He prayed during the day, during the night. He prayed alone. He prayed with others. He prayed regular daily prayers, but he also prayed when he was broken and hurting. He prayed with reverence and he prayed with childlike trust in God's will for his life. He prayed pouring out his petition and then accepting the Father's no without grumbling and complaining. Let's imitate our Christ in prayer 
It's our family story. He calls us to be people of prayer, encouraging us to pray. Many of these that he tells us about in the garden, they couldn't wait with him. They, uh, they fell asleep, but he encouraged them not to let this, uh, not, even though this, the flesh is weak, but let the spirit be willing. And he went away and prayed, the scripture says. Number eight, 26, 47 to 49, Judas shows up with the, the soldiers and betrays Jesus with a what? A kiss. Betrays Jesus with a kiss uh, in the garden. Uh, we notice in this scripture, the great multitude of the soldiers come. John tells us that it was a cohort. And a cohort could be up to 600 soldiers. Can you imagine this garden in the middle of the night and these soldiers coming with, with torches, uh, some 600 of them? You know, I think they were scared of him. They didn't know what he was able to do because of all they had seen him do. John tells us, that those soldiers started coming to him, and he says, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus says, I am he. Anybody know what happened? They all fell to the ground. All fell down. I'd like to see that one. I hope they have it on video in heaven. We could uh, <laughs> see what that Got 600 soldiers up there, and he simply says, I am he, and all of them fall to the ground by the power of what he said. He easily could have gotten away. But the soldiers arrest him. That's what happens next uh, in our story. Jesus is arrested, 2650. Uh, Judas offers this kiss to him, reminding, uh, letting them know who they are to arrest. We see the, rest of, arrest, the arrest of Jesus. Uh, he's, he's grabbed up. Peter, in this case, decides he's going to help him out. So Peter has a sword. I'm not sure what he has a sword trying to pray in the garden to do, but I guess he was protecting or watching over them in the darkness of the garden. And he picks up the sword, and I think he was trying to chop off the guy's head, but he missed and chopped off his ear. And so the Jesus says, put your sword in place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Uh, he's recognizing that he could, God could have brought about 12 legions of angels uh, if he had wanted to, to protect him. He didn't need to be protected by the sword. Uh, it might have seemed like they were in charge arresting him, but Christ was in charge. So he is arrested there uh, in that moment in the garden. Uh, and that's part of our story. The arrest leads to this trial really illegal trial by the Sanhedrin. You know, we say illegal trial because according to Jewish law, criminal cases couldn't, wouldn't be tried over a Passover weekend like that. According to the Jewish law, um, the, there had to be some kind of process that was set up. He was just taken directly to the judge. Uh, the evidence was through two, turned out to be false witnesses. Uh, they didn't know what they were talking about. Uh, and the Sanhedrin did it in the middle of the night. How would you like to have your little trial done in the middle of the night? No chance. Uh, you know, if we got to go to trial, let's at least have the judge and in the right place and in order. But here they are in the middle of the night taking to Caiaphas' house. Uh, and in the midst of that, they are uh, pressing him, pushing against him, uh, calling him all kind of uh, blasphemous names. But here, uh, number 11, Jesus, part of our story, 26, 62 to 64, Jesus testifies at his trial. Such an amazing scene here. It says, Jesus said, uh, th these are the false witnesses, destroy the temple and in three days I will raise it up. The high priest says, do you answer nothing? What is it with these men who testify against you? But Jesus kept silent. 
And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. I think what's happened is they got no good evidence against him, and the high priest is upset. And so he's yelling loudly, and he's telling him, why don't you say something? Tell us who you are. And Jesus, in his own words, he says, it is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Well, I gave you your answer. I am who he is, and you think you're in control, but you wait just a little while. All this is according to God's plan, to God's purpose, but soon you will see the, the Son of Man at the right hand of power. Do you answer nothing, the high priest says, and Jesus says, uh, it is just as you said. He is the Son of God. Jesus testifies at his trial. After this testimony, the Sanhedrin and the high priest, the religious leaders, react with horror and brutality. Horror and brutality. Notice what they do. The high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we need of witnesses? Look now, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered and said, He's deserving of death. Then they spat on his face and beat him, and others struck him with the palms of their hands, saying, Prophesy to us, Christ, who is the one who struck you? Did you know that was part of your story? We see what they did to him. They spit upon him. The Son of God, our Savior. They beat him with their fist and slapped him with their open hand. They couldn't admit to himself who he was. They didn't believe. Do we still spit on him? Does the world spit on him, denying who he is, rejecting his gospel, not understanding or accepting the sacrifice that he made on our behalf, turning away uh, from Christ. They came to, the, to him with, uh, with brutality, rejection, turning away uh, from Christ. Finally, in this beginning moment, our story in 26, fearing association with Jesus. Peter denies Jesus three times. What Jesus predicted comes about. Not because an angry mob went after him or police or others in authority, but a servant girl, a simple girl, um, asked him a question about knowing that he said, I don't know the man. <coughs> and he turns away. Uh, Peter began to curse and swear. Uh, and he remembered the words of Jesus. And the cock crowed. And he wept bitterly. This is our story. This is our story from... The beginning here. Now, you know, this is, this is the Savior that we serve. Acts tells us that um, Peter, when he was preaching at Pentecost, he came along and said, I want you to know that this is our Jesus. This is our story, the one that was crucified. You know, he's not the political Jesus. He's not the Democrat Jesus, Republican. He's not, the, he's not some other Jesus. You know, a lot of people try to shape Jesus into their own shape. But the Jesus that we have that's in our family is the Jesus that was crucified, that gave his life for us. Is this your story? Two hymns. I mentioned them last week. Um, two different hymns to think about. We're only going to sing one. This, this first one, um, love these words. The hymn writer says, this is my story. 
This is my song. Just like that singing there. Praising my Savior all the day long. Those are great words. Is this your story? Have you embraced this, this entire scene that Matthew is opening for us? He's not just wanting you to remember that cross died. He wants us to remember this whole setting, all of these details of how he suffered, how he was treated that brought him to the place of sacrifice. Another hymn writer says, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross for the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So, it's my story. I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies and all my stuff I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross till one day I'll exchange it for a crown. That's our story. Sing that. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross the They help us with our story. Sing it. Oh, the old rugged cross, so despised by the world, does it? Has a wondrous attraction for me. Oh. 
your family. You got them stories and you got them pictures and you got all this and, and stuff's happened. And you have to embrace that's who you are. That's your family. That's what we're doing today. You know, this is not one of them sermons where you think, well, maybe I'll think about this this week or change that. This changes everything forever, right? This is how I, the rest of my life, Think about the cross. That's what he's trying to get you to do, to recognize that we're in this story. Uh, you're, you're a part of this. So embrace the story. Embrace the cross, the old rugged cross. If you're in this room and you haven't really surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, he's already done everything you need done. He's already given everything for you. All he's waiting on you is just to say yes. I get it. I see it. Trust him. Let's praise him. Let's give him thanks in prayer today. Heavenly Father, what a story. And we're not even, we're not even in 27 yet. We're not even in the, uh, the real uh, ending of the story, Lord. But I pray that what we see in 26, that you would remind us, this is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long about the old rugged cross. Lord, save somebody today in this room. Somebody that's struggling, wandered from you. Maybe they heard the story of the cross and they maybe they just never really embraced it as their own story. And today everything changed in the family because we recognize that this is our story. We praise you now. We love you, Lord. Uh, we just ask your Holy Spirit to help us as we continue in this journey of learning about uh, the story of the cross, the crucifixion, the centerpiece of all of history. In Jesus' name, everybody said together, amen. If you'd be seated, please.